to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this episode, we're covering a number of topics, beginning with a look at the federal government's Affordable Connectivity Program, which has the potential to increase broadband access for millions of Americans. From there, environmental reporter James Brueger talks with Eastern Standard's Tom Martin about his research on lagging strip mine reclamation. And diabetes prevention educator Mary Beth Castle shares her own journey towards better health. We conclude with an interview with Naomi Judd, originally broadcast on KET. On June 13th, the Leadership Council on Civil and Human Rights held a webinar to promote the availability of the new Affordable Connectivity Program for broadband access. We hear from Anita Banerjee, Leadership Conference's Media and Tech Program Director, from Maya Wiley, the new President and CEO of the Leadership Council, Ambassador Susan Rice, who is White House Domestic Policy Advisor, and Federal Communications Commission Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworschel. I'm Anita Banerjee with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. We thank you for joining us today and making time to participate in activities throughout the week to help spread the word about this new federal broadband program. Over the past two years, Americans have faced unprecedented challenges due to the COVID-19 pandemic. As many of our daily routines have moved online, access to high quality affordable internet has become an essential resource for daily life. In response to this need, the federal government established the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, EBB, in May of 2021 to provide discounts and relief of internet bills and thereby allow the most marginalized communities, households, families, and individuals to have reliable access to the internet at home. Understanding this monumental need, Congress and the White House worked to replace the temporary EBB program with a more long-term solution to the digital divide through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act last fall. From that, grew the Affordable Connectivity Program, known as ACP. This new program tackles one of the country's most pressing issues by allowing even more families to qualify for financial assistance. It provides a monthly discount of up to $30 for eligible families' internet services and up to $75 a month for households on tribal lands. It also offers a one-time subsidy of up to $100 for the purchase of a computer, a laptop, or tablet from internet service providers. Today, we will hear from leaders in the broadband effort. And to start off our program, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, the Leadership Conference's new president and CEO, Maya Wiley. She has been a fierce champion for broadband access for years and believes that everyone, no matter where you live in this country, should be digitally connected. Thank you, Maya. Well, thank you, Anita. I want to start with how I got into this issue of digital equity in the first place. Because as an advocate, as a racial justice advocate, working with the rural community and right outside of Columbia, South Carolina, uh, a black community that owned land that said, we 
may be poor, but we have an asset, we have land. Shouldn't we be able to get into this thing called the green economy and build more wealth in our communities? And we thought at the Center for Social Inclusion that I ran at the time that it was a great idea, brilliant um, asset framework for black community, even if it's low income. And we immediately set about figuring out how they could get into the business of a green economy. Um, and what we quickly found out was that all the various things they might be able to do with their land to make money in a, in, in a green economy required broadband and they didn't have it. And it became very apparent to us that if we were gonna solve structural racism, which was our mission, we actually had to pay attention to broadband as infrastructure and the racial justice and fairness of where and how that infrastructure was deployed. But this is the thing, we're so excited. One, that incredible coalition of groups uh, came together to fight and continue the fight. It's been one that the civil rights community has been engaging in since the 1990s for equitable access to the infrastructure, the ability to pay for it and make sure it's affordable and also the ability to use it, use it constructively well uh, and in a way that advances uh, equity and inclusion. And that's whether you live in a rural community or an urban one, because we face a lot of the same problems, even across the rural and urban divides. So I say to you, I'm excited uh, because it is a huge opportunity for our people, for our communities all over this country to help folks use this in tremendously important benefit to make sure they can afford to pay for the service. Now, I have the tremendous privilege of introducing to you Ambassador Susan Rice. Thank you so much, Maya. It's great to be joining with you and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as President Biden's domestic policy advisor, uh, I have the great privilege of driving the president's domestic policy agenda in the White House and across the federal government from healthcare to economic mobility to rural and urban policy. And that includes quarterbacking our efforts to advance equity and racial justice. One essential way that we're advancing equity and racial justice is through the implementation of the president's landmark bipartisan infrastructure law. For communities that have had their homes bulldozed to make way for highways or been left out of good jobs in the building trades, the stakes here are very high and we're determined to get this right. And that's why we're making sure that the jobs created by this infrastructure law are accessible to underserved communities. We're encouraging and where possible requiring grantees to factor in input from their local communities. We're collecting data on equity to monitor in real time how underserved communities are benefiting from this unprecedented funding. We're embedding non-discrimination protections into federal contracts and grants and ensuring that everything we build with federal dollars is fully accessible to people with disabilities. Expanding broadband is a critical element of our efforts. High-speed internet service is not a luxury. As you all know, it's an absolute necessity. But too many families still go without high-speed internet because of the cost, um, or they have to cut back on other essentials to make their monthly internet service payments. Lowering costs, including the cost of high-speed internet service, is President Biden's top priority. As part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, the President and Vice President worked with the Democrats and Republicans in Congress to create the Affordable Connectivity Program. 
This program, as you know, allows tens of millions of Americans uh, and their households to reduce their internet service costs by up to $30 a month or $75 a month if you live on tribal lands. What's more, the Biden-Harris administration has secured commitments from most of the country's leading internet uh, service providers to offer ACP-eligible households high-speed, high-quality internet plans for no more than $30 a month. So what that means is that for tens of millions of ACP-eligible households, they'll receive a $30 a month discount on a $30 a month plan, meaning they can receive high-speed internet at no cost, free internet. That's a pretty good deal. Millions of Americans are eligible for this benefit, but most don't know anything about it. We need to get the word out. Households qualify for ACP based on their income or through their participation in one of several other federal programs like Pell Grants, Medicaid, or Supplemental uh, Security Income. And federal agencies are doing their part to get the word out. For example, last month, the Social Security Administration sent an email to 1.6 million Supplemental Security Income recipients. And later this summer, the Department of Education will contact all Pell Grant recipients, informing them of their eligibility for the Affordable Connectivity Program. Cities and states are taking action as well. For instance, Michigan, Massachusetts, Philadelphia, Mesa, Arizona, and New York City will text millions of eligible households. This outreach is vital, but we know that you are among the best and most trusted messengers in your communities. You'll be hearing this a lot today, but I can't say it enough. Go to getinternet.gov, getinternet.gov, all one word. We've got to get to people and get them to sign up for this website. It's a simple, easy to use website with details on how Americans can then sign up for ACP and find participating internet providers in their area. It's actually already the most visited White House webpage over the last 30 days. Let's keep that up. President Biden talks a lot about the, the so many students who had to go to McDonald's parking lots during the pandemic to try to tap into Wi-Fi to do their homework. This is the United States of America. We can do better than that. We can lower costs, get people connected, and expand opportunity. And with your critical help, we'll be a lot closer to that goal. So thank you in advance for spreading the word. And now I'll turn it back. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Ambassador Rice. So our next speaker up, we have the pleasure of hearing from the Federal Communications Commission Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel. She believes that the future belongs to the connected. She works to promote greater opportunity, accessibility, and affordability in our communication services in order to ensure that all Americans get a fair shot at 21st century success. We are so fortunate to have you join us today, Chairwoman Rosenworcel. You know, it was John Lewis who famously declared that access to the internet is the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Amen, I believe it. Because no matter who you are or where you live in this country, you need access to broadband to have a fair shot at success. And we've gotta close the digital divide. Now is the time to make it happen. I say that because, well, for starters, I'm impatient. 
but also because I believe in my bones, the digital divide is one of those divides in this country we have waited too long to solve and too long to address. But now we are within reach of fixing it. We're within reach of closing it. And the reason why is that this pandemic has proven without a doubt that broadband is no longer nice to have, but it's need to have for everyone everywhere. So game on, let's do it. And let's recognize from the start that this is going to be a team effort. It requires coordination and cooperation. So at the FCC, we are working closely with our colleagues at the National Telecommunication and Information Administration, which is part of the Department of Commerce to address the digital divide. You see, NTIA is responsible for administering what's known as the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program, which is a $42 billion fund designed to make sure we have up-to-date broadband infrastructure in every corner of the country, rural, urban, and everything in between. Now, those funds are going to be distributed based on data the FCC is collecting to map where internet service is and is not in this country. And we're going to use a bunch of sources to do this. We're going to take information from broadband providers, but then we're going to double check it with data from state and local governments, as well as consumers themselves. On top of that, we'll have audits from the FCC. So what does this all mean? The goal is that we're gonna have for the first time ever in this country, an honest accounting of where broadband service really is and is not in every community nationwide. Now, in addition to mapping broadband access so we can build the service everywhere, we have been laser focused on affordability. That's because even when broadband infrastructure is present, not everyone can afford to subscribe. Price can be a barrier. So that also contributes to the digital divide. Now we all know this because we all saw it, especially during the early days of the pandemic. We saw what happens when the cost of service keeps households offline. We saw kids sitting outside of fast food restaurants just to catch the free Wi-Fi signal to go to class. We saw parents putting off healthcare appointments that moved from in-person to online. And we saw people in parking lots using whatever signal they could find to keep up with work keep up with friends and family, and get the news and information they needed when this cruel virus upended so much in modern life. So let me remind you, this is the United States of America. We are one of the wealthiest countries on earth. It is not audacious to say we can do better. It's not audacious to say that we can have broadband reach everyone in this country. And it's not unreasonable to say that just like with telephone service and electricity service, we should have a program to help everyone afford basic broadband service. So the good news is now we do. At the FCC, we have set up the Affordable Connectivity Program. It is now the nation's largest ever broadband affordability effort. It's historic. It's a $14 billion effort to close the affordability component of the digital divide. And I know already so many of you here today know this because so many of you worked with the FCC to get the emergency broadband benefit up and running, and then this long-term initiative going earlier this year. And thanks to your efforts today, the FCC can say it has more than 12 million low-income households nationwide that subscribe to broadband because of the Affordable Connectivity Program. That means they get as much as $30 a month off their broadband bill or $75 a month on tribal lands. We have more than 1,300 providers participating nationwide and many of them offer discount of $100 on a laptop 
or tablet computer to help those families make sure they can get online and stay online with a device. So um, just one quick story. I was, uh, I was fortunate to be in Michigan recently and I visited Detroit and I met a student there who attended Cass Tech in downtown Detroit. And she was headed to the University of Michigan in the fall, go blue. She's the first in her family to go to college. And she talked about how lucky she was to have the internet at home during this pandemic. How when they found this program, it made such a difference for her and her family. That she was clear-eyed about what was happening around her and how the lack of access with all of her classmates wasn't fair and wasn't right. And so when her family was able to sign up, she would host her classmates who lacked reliable service at home. So they too could have a fair shot at succeeding in class and succeeding in school. And there's so much grace and decency in her story. And it's a reminder, there's just so much talent in this country. And while that may be equally distributed, opportunities not. But what we have here is a really valuable program because it can reach every zip code. Local governments, civic groups, and community leaders around the country were encouraged by all the speakers to spread the word about the program and assist in signing up eligible families and individuals. For more information on eligibility and how to sign up, visit getinternet.gov and affordableconnectivity.gov. At these sites, you can also find internet companies in our region that are offering this program. Next, Tom Martin from WEKU's Eastern Standard interviews environmental reporter James Brueger about the state of Kentucky's failure to enforce cleanup of many unreclaimed mine sites. Environmental reporter James Bruggers was with us earlier this year discussing his article about the devastation left across Appalachia by mountaintop removal and other forms of surface mining. Well, James now writes that as the coal industry has collapsed in Kentucky, companies have racked up a rising number of violations at surface mines, and state regulators have failed to bring a record number of them into compliance. He joins us with key details. James, welcome back. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. In the interest of time now, I encourage reading that initial article. Just Google Inside Climate News as one word and do an easy and quick search on the site for James Bruggers, B-R-U-G-G-E-R-S. You'll be looking for his article titled, Coal Powered the Industrial Revolution. It left behind an absolutely massive environmental catastrophe. A follow-up was published this week. Jim, what's it all about? Well, back in January, I filed an open records request with the state of Kentucky, the Energy and Environment Cabinet. Um, I was just trying to get an update on what was going on with some reclamation that was not occurring on a particular mine in Floyd County owned by, uh, well, the property, the land is owned by a a gentleman named Tracy Neese. And the company um, that had owned that property, uh, Revelation, which was part of Black Jewel, had gone bankrupt and had left the property, left this mountain partially, um, you know, blasted away, uh, two miles of high wall, um, unstable rock cliffs left from the mining that he estimated to be at least 250 feet tall. So I wanted to just see what was going on. And what I got back was something I didn't really necessarily anticipate, but actually in one of the emails, there was an attachment that showed unresolved violations that were basically enforcement data going back to 2013. In there, you could see how many of these uh, violations had been resolved and how many of them hadn't. So it, it showed a record number of more than 800 of these notices of noncompliance had not been 
resolved as of you know last November, and it's even more now. Uh, I did an update, it's about 810 or something like that right now. Um, so I wanted to know what was going on. Well, interestingly enough, some emails that were provided to me included some that had at least one reasonably high level and I think pretty much respected state official, Courtney Skaggs, who had gone to her superiors to call out this as a serious problem. She was very plain spoken in her description in one of the emails saying, this is completely out of control. This is gonna blow up in someone's face. And she's a senior scientist uh, in the commissioner's office at the Department of, uh, for Natural Resources and a former acting director of the Division of Mine Reclamation Enforcement. So she really knows what she's talking about. You talk with uh, Mary Cromer, an attorney and deputy director of the Appalachian Citizens Law Center, about the state's negotiations with the insurance companies that hold bonds that are supposed to cover the cost of reclamation for mining companies that have gone bankrupt. What did you learn? Well, Mary tells me that, that the picture that she sees from the data, I shared it with her to get her take on it as well. There's really a couple different things going on here. There's companies that have gone bankrupt, like Black Jewel and Revelation, and there's one Ember Energy. Uh, but there's other companies that have not gone bankrupt that have just you know slowed down their mining operations. So she describes part of the problem as the state's just having a hard time getting those companies that have not gone bankrupt to do the work because there's not much incentive for them. They can get fines or be told they can't get new permits, but they don't really need new permits because they're not really mining that much more coal. There is a little blip in the coal mining right now, but um, it's not a major turnaround. But the other thing having to do with your question about the bonding Mm -hmm. um, and the bankruptcy, I mean, there's just serious questions about whether Kentucky has required enough bonds to pay for the reclamation at sites once companies go bankrupt. So like the Tracy Nisa's property uh, in the bankruptcy proceedings that came out, he's got 300 acres and the state has estimated that the cost of reclaiming that could be 10 million, but the state only required about 1.7 million in reclamation bonds for that particular property. So that there's some real questions about that and maybe that's part of the state's calculation. Well, as these abandoned mines sit there unattended, what are the implications for two things that kind of go hand in hand, public health and the environment? The cliffs are unstable. Some of these these high walls are unstable. And, you know, Tracy Neese is worried that someone will drive an ATV vehicle um, just off the top of uh, off the top of one of these mountains and, you know, kill themselves. So there's that. But there's also erosion. Boulders can fall away and break away and and you know, leave the property. Um, there's pollution. There's the, the water that's retained on these parcels. Uh, it can pick up pollution from the mining process and contaminate groundwater or surface waters. So uh, yeah, it's a real. There's real impact potentially. We should note here that uh, Tucker Davis, the president of the Kentucky Coal Association, did not return your email or your voicemail request for comment. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, James, what has been your experience communicating with and dealing with state officials on this story? The Energy and Environment Cabinet did respond to some questions that I had, and they say that the enforcement data can be explained by what they call an unprecedented number of bankruptcies uh, that were caused by uh, these market forces in the coal industry. They say it's really out of the situation. It's really out of their control. They are working to get these agreements with 
the bondholders to do the jobs they need to do to reclaim these sites. But they say that they're just going to continue writing violation notices, whether there's a viable permittee or not. So it's a, um, I don't know if these violations are going to stay unresolved until they get these agreements done, unless there's some sort of imminent danger. And they say they can go to court to, to get action during imminent danger. But they do recognize that they've got a problem here, and they are saying it's largely out of their control, but they're you know, working to resolve it. We have barely scratched the surface here, and there's so much depth to this article. I'd like to suggest that our readers find it online and dig into it. Where can they do that? They can do it at Inside Climate News website. If you just Google Inside Climate News, as you said at the beginning, also it's uh, in the Courier Journal on their website. Environmental reporter James Bruggers in Louisville, his latest article on the aftermath of the coal industry. Next, Apple Shop's Prevent Diabetes EKY Public Health Project shares a new story from diabetes prevention educator Mary Beth Castle from Johnson County. And then she said, you are now pre-diabetic. And that kind of clicked with me because my dad's a diabetic, my mom's a diabetic, both of my siblings. And I went, okay, it's time for me to do something. I'm Mary Beth Castle. I'm the health educator at the Johnson County Health Department, but I'm also the Diabetes Prevention Program lifestyle coach as well. Most people that are pre-diabetic don't know that they're pre-diabetic because it's not something that Doctors will usually mention to them until it gets really to the point they are already type 2 diabetic. People don't even know that there is such a thing as being pre-diabetic that can lead you into being a type 2 diabetic. The Diabetes Prevention Program is set up to be 16 core classes. It's a class, one class per week. It lasts about an hour, sometimes a little hour and a half. Depends on your group. Each of the classes are set up in different stages. We do talk about different things. Like the first time they come in, we do talk about what your weight is and where your weight needs to be. The program is not asking you to lose a lot of weight. It's set up to lose five to 7% of your body weight. And so we're, it's not like we're asking people to drop 50 pounds. Some people may needed to lose 12, some people may have needed to lose 22, but it's each individual is it's set for them based on what their weight is. So that's the first thing we do. And then we gradually start looking at what kind of foods that we're eating. We look at labels. I bring in foods in here. We turn the labels over. We look what kinds of things are in those as far as carbs and sugars and calories. We try to figure out a plan for them of what they want their calorie intake to be so that they can start to see some marginal weight loss. I don't expect them to come in here and have 10 pounds lost, you know, in a week, or maybe not even 10 pounds in a month. If they're moving the scale in the downward direction, that's what we want them to do. And then we gradually work from that, we work into physical activity. And physical activity can be anything that they count during the day. I want them to get uh, at least 150 minutes of physical activity in a week. So that's about 30 minutes for five days. It doesn't have to all be done at what time? one time. If they do 30 minutes a day, it could be 10 in the morning, 10 in the middle of the day, 10 in the afternoon. But they get to count everything they do as 
physical activity. If it's mopping, if it's running the vacuum, if it's taking the trash out, if they're one old lady washes her car all the time. Uh, she's like 82, I think she said, and she's like washing her car. She gets to count that as physical activity. Our little saying as far as uh, our process is we are trying to be like the tortoise and the hare, but we are the tortoise. We're trying to be slow, but yet stay on a steady pace to see some marginal weight loss, but yet get some physical activity in there. And I want them to feel good about it. You know, and we always, when somebody in here would like, they lost whatever weight, we always try to yoo-hoo and clap and, you know, always give them warm and fuzzies and pats on the back per se, because we all, we all like that feeling when we start to accomplish things. I, I don't tell them they can't have anything. I don't tell them they can't eat this or they can't eat that. I tell them they can have what they want to eat. They need to do it in moderation and they need to look at portion sizes. We live in an area where our grannies and our mamas want our plates to be full of food and they want us to eat everything on there. Trying to get them to get back to that, instead of three spoonfuls, start with two of green beans instead of three of the green beans, even though that's probably a better thing that you can eat. Because if they just cut back on portions alone, that's gonna make a difference. But the group setting is awesome. Sitting here around a table, with other people that are going through the same thing that you're going through as far as, you know, looking at their foods they're eating, getting physical activity, being accountable for their weight every week. Every week they come in, they weigh. They don't have to tell the group their weight. They write it down. They give that to me. I keep that to myself. The only way that other people would know in their group what your weight is, is if you personally tell them. And most of our group, they're, they're pretty sharing. A lot of them don't care to tell what their weight was or... If they gained, my little ladies don't care to say I gained a pound or two or whatever. Once it goes to once a month, then that's where we are now. It's a core maintenance, which is a six month. We meet once every six months after the first 16 weeks. They will tell you that they miss that once a week gathering because you're going a whole month and not seeing those people. You're not talking about what's going on. You're not talking about what struggles that you may have, or you're not accountable for that weigh-in every week. You're only having to weigh in once a month. And so that was, that weekly thing is really good for accountability. Uh, and I never, ever say anything negative to them. If they didn't lose weight, we talk about, okay, what do you think might have been the reason? And everybody bounces off of each other because what might work for LaDonna doesn't work for... Stony and what might didn't work for Stony didn't work for Mary and, and it's just it's all geared toward the personal individual. It's hard to get people to go out of their comfort zone. We're all that way. We like to stay in that box. We don't want to get outside of that box and it makes it really hard. I try to use myself kind of as a motivational piece because I was right where they were. Before I started here at the health department, I had had my health checkup that we had to do for our health insurance. And they told me then that I was obese, which I knew that. I'm 5'2". You can't weigh 202 pounds when you're 5'2". You can, but it's not good for you. And then she said, you are now pre-diabetic. And I, that kind of clicked with me because my dad's a diabetic, my mom's a diabetic, both of my siblings. And I went, okay, it's time for me to do something. So I did what they're having trouble with. I had to go outside my box 
and I started walking and that's what I told them you don't have to walk far and you don't have to walk fast just some physical activity and, and I'm now a runner and I never was a runner and I now do cardio kickboxing and I never did do that either but I pushed myself outside that box and if I and I, that's what I said to him because when I said I weighed 202 they went yeah whatever and I'm like no I did and so they've seen pictures of me and I'm extremely overweight but I said I'm 56 if I can do it anybody can do it but it is a mindset thing you have to want to do for you a lot of people don't can't seem to get there because they still think they have to take care of everybody else but you can't take care of everybody else if you don't take care of you so many people that will message me or talk to me and go what's your secret there is no secret you have to be more physically active and you have to start watching what's going in your mouth and they have to balance each other out I will eat things that I know that are not necessarily healthy for me and probably that I shouldn't have eaten but I make sure that if I had three pieces of pizza that I've worked out that day or I've walked a little extra that day or tomorrow I'm going to walk a little extra because I ate something the day before. I think physical activity is the biggest thing right now for people. We get too sedentary and so many families have children and they have to be, one has to be in A and one has to be at B and one has to be at C or, and everybody's in such a hurry and we're so quick to run through those drive throughs and we pick up something really quick and so many of the things that are cheap for families are things that are not healthy for them. And we as adults, we're sitting at a baseball field or we're sitting in a gym or we're sitting, you know, we're wherever we are and okay, your child is playing softball or playing baseball. You can get up and walk around there while you're there. There's, I just think if you're physically able to do it, you need to be doing the physical activity before you get to the point where you can't do physical activity. I think it's just become commonplace for people. Grandpa had diabetes, granny had it, my aunt sister had it, my aunt had it, and everybody just kind of is like, okay, I, I'm t I have diabetes now. I, I don't think they see it as a huge health concern in this area. I mean, and they can watch family members die because of it or complications from it, but I think they think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. And then if it does, it's like, eh, it's not that big a deal. You know, they go to the doctor and they just expect to, the doctor just to give them a pill and the medicine's going to take care of it and I don't have to worry about it. And that's not the way it is with diabetes. Yes, once you get it, there is medications that you can take and it will help to keep it in check. But there are still things you have to do for yourself. So to keep from getting to that point or maybe kicking that can, as I said, farther down the road and prolong it as long as we can, let's do the things that's good for us to help with that. I'm not asking you to get out and run a marathon tomorrow. I'm asking you to start small. Walk just a little bit and then in a week or two, increase your distance a little bit. And then in a week or two, increase that distance a little bit. We're back to that tortoise. Slow and steady. And then next thing you know, you'll be walking seven miles a day or getting seven miles of activity today. Or me who started out just walking and now I run 5Ks and I do cardio kickboxing. But I started out just walking like a fourth of a mile and that is hard that's hard for anything just that first step whether it be 
getting more physical activity and going, okay, I'm going to start tomorrow and I'm going to get up and I'm going to start walking. Or I'm going to start with portion control. And that first time that you put food on your plate and there's all that food there and you're like, I'm only going to put this and this and this and that's all I'm going to eat. That first step is hard. But once you get over that hurdle, I think it's all downhill from there. It's so much easier. Eastern Kentucky, we're at the top of like for everything, whether it be cancers or, you know, smoking or diabetes or pre-diabetes. And I hear people in this area say, well, it doesn't matter what you do. When it's time for you to die, you're going to die no matter what. Kind of like that, oh, well, I'm already predestined to have type 2 diabetes. I'm just going to have it, so I don't need to worry about it. My comeback to that is, okay, maybe I am going to end up with type 2 diabetes later on in life. I mean, it's the possibilities for me are good, but I'm willing to take the chances to try to prolong all of that down the road as long as I can. I think just people knowing that the diabetes prevention program is attainable. You talk about, oh, it's going to be 16 classes and it's going to be 16 weeks and we have to meet for an hour. I think people automatically turn that off and they don't realize how good of experience it can be and that it is just about them. It's not like you're coming in here and you just have to deal with all those people that's in that session. Everything is geared toward the individual person. It's about you and it's about you making changes for you and to maybe stop this cycle of you know, going from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, it has to start somewhere. Why can't it not start with me? Again, you've been hearing from Mary Beth Castle of Johnson County. Mary Beth leads Johnson County's Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP, a lifestyle change program where participants meet in small groups over the course of a year to learn and support each other in preventing diabetes. The DPP is offered in counties all across the region. To find a group near you, and for more stories of preventing diabetes in Eastern Kentucky, check out our project website, preventdiabeteseky.org. We conclude with an interview with Kentucky legend Naomi Judd. On April 30th, Kentucky actress and activist Ashley Judd confirmed to the world that her mother, country music star Naomi Judd, had died, tweeting, We lost our beautiful mother to the disease of mental illness. The news came only one day before Naomi Judd was to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. In 2014, Naomi Judd was in Lexington to speak at the One Parent Scholar House where single parents get the help they need to earn a college degree, and she could relate to that. And while in town, she made time to sit down for a chat about her extraordinary life with Bill Goodman, now executive director of Kentucky Humanities, but at the time, Bill was host of the KET interview program one-on-one. Bill and KET have shared the conversation with us. Welcome. So nice to have you here. I'm home. (laughs) You are. You are, and I want to talk a little bit about that. That's something that um, I think people know that you have Kentucky roots, but I want to know a little bit more about that. But I'm also curious, you are so many things. Uh, you, we're all sort of defined by our labels uh, mm. at times. Uh, mother and grandmother and activist and singer and performer, and it goes on and on and on. 
When you think of your yourself, um, what do you think of first about who you are? What a great question. I can tell a lot about an interviewer by the questions they ask. <laughs> well, you because you've done that yourself. <laughs> you're very well informed. Yeah. Interesting question. Um, it's always sort of curious to me if I'm standing in the wings of uh, a theater, if I'm getting ready to go out and give a lecture, um, or if I'm just being introduced at some event, what they choose to stereotype, what mm. labels they want to put on me. And I've always loved um, the moniker, the star next door. Mm. I'll never forget the first time someone introduced me that way. Mm. And I was supposed to bolt onto the stage then as soon as they introduced me. And it took me just a second because that felt so... Um, I appreciated that mm -hmm. because I know there's nothing different about me. Um, it's just that I do some unusual <laughs> things in my career. But um, to say the star next door sort of connotes that I am every woman. And I really appreciate that because of the encyclopedic range of things I've done in my life. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me about your um, your Kentucky connection and um, how much Kentucky is, is in the star next door. Born and raised um, in Ashland, Kentucky. So um, the roots are very deep. Mm -hmm. I know the ancestral lineage going back to um, my great, great, grandfather mm. who was uh he used his pension from the civil war mm. to buy the jet home place in louisa kentucky mm. uh ricky skaggs is from cordell mm -hmm. which is close to us mm -hmm. so we claim um ancestors mm -hmm. we're country cousins as we mm -hmm. as we like to say mm -hmm. um so the roots are very deep and i've hopefully imparted that to winona and ashley yeah. Do you get back there often? I, I know you worked there, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, but do you, do you go back and visit? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So you... Our family um, isn't much, aren't much for uh, showing emotions. Ah. Is that a good thing? No. No, it's <laughs> not. I know I was talking to Dolly. Um, Dolly's one of my favorite people on the planet. I'm very proud to call her a girlfriend. Uh, Dolly and Reba and I were talking one time, Reba McIntyre, and no one in our family was allowed to show emotion. Hmm. It was just real bare bones, you know, just work hard. And um, there was nothing, there was no art form in the house. So because we were sort of squelched, I always felt like a big pinata walking around wishing somebody would hmm. break me open so I could spell out my secrets. Um, Reba and Dolly and I have as adults, been doing what we wanted to do as children, mm. which is to express ourselves, to write songs, to, uh, to be animated, to be entertainers. But you're all for laying it on the table and, and talking about it and being expressive and, mm -hmm. and, and talking about one's, one's life. Um, uh, Dolly's made a, a career out of it, 
And uh, gosh, it's been about 20 years ago, but I was over at Reba's house having supper. And coincidentally, she had a song on the radio that was a number one hit that week uh, called The Greatest Man I Never Knew. Lived just down the hall, and she's referring to her dad, mm. um, Clarky. Uh, his name was Clark. Uh, again, rodeo family out of Stringtown, Oklahoma. But um, she began talking about the fact that he had never really told her he loved her. Mm. And that week, he had to go in for open heart surgery. Um, and as they were wheeling him literally into surgery, he looked up at her from his gurney and said, uh, Reba, I love you. And as she was telling this to me, you know, the, the tears just came. And it's a generational thing, but I really think that shows like Oprah and um, all the, the self-help books and all that and some of what you've done encouraged. too, don't you think? I mean, uh, you, you've um, sort of promoted that on your, in, in your career, on your radio program. I mean, mm -hmm. wasn't that sort of, uh, uh, you zeroed in on, on what people were thinking and, and, and needed to express and couldn't express, uh, that, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. What, what do you call what you do now and hmm. when you meet people and, and, and in an audience and are you trying to get them to sort of give you some feedback? They're in the audience to see and hear you and you, you, I, I see you sort of trying to pull out of them some, some emotion. Sure. You know, it's like going to the zoo. You, <laughs> who's watching who? And if you know anything about me, you know that I'm absolutely audience participation. Um, it's actually, my actress daughter calls it the pinch and the ouch. Um, pinch and the ouch. Yeah, as an actress, she knows her lines, but she doesn't do anything until her uh, cohort gives her the pinch so that she can um, respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. And when I'm with people that, um, for instance, today I'm gonna be talking about some stuff that's probably gonna make me cry. Some real autobiographical stuff, some chronological stuff that... Um, um, Why haven't you talked uh, about it before? It hasn't been the right venue. This is an extraordinary uh, situation. The one parent scholar mm. house, um, wow, if I had known that there was an organization like this, it would have changed the trajectory of my life if it had existed uh, back when I was in need because um, I survived domestic violence. Uh, well. It's tough still. Mm. Winona and Ashley were, were born and raised in Ashland? Winona was born in the same room, same hospital, King's Daughters Hospital in Ashland, Kentucky, attended by the same nurse <laughs> that my mom had me when she was 18. But Ashley was born That's in California. Amazing. Yeah, okay. Um, I married Ashley's dad and he uh, had just graduated from Transylvania, so we got sent to uh, to California. Of course, I'd never been out of Ashland, Kentucky, so that was a whole new. So your Kentucky world. roots uh, are really—I mean, they run—they run deep. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, I know you're proud of that. Oh, absolutely. The organizations that you're affiliated with are uh, a long, long list, but a couple of those that are Kentucky-related. You've been involved uh, really as an activist uh, with uh, mountaintop removal. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you become yourself interested in that or did Ashley sort of uh, learn about that and, and educate the rest of the family and get you involved in that? I think Ashley and I came to it about the same time. When you're from Eastern Kentucky and you see firsthand uh, how they're raping the land and pillaging the, the mountaintops, um, you can't not get involved. Uh, so even though you're this lovely person and uh, performer and and star um, and so successful, you sort of have this uh, this political uh, thing in your in your gut too that you you feel very passionately about. Uh, and, and this is just one of the examples. I mean, feeding the poor, uh, mm. poverty uh, in Kentucky, especially mm -hmm. uh, mountaintop removal. Uh, there are other areas too. So, so you don't you don't shy away from the controversial, do you? No, justice for all. <laughs> Is it sort of uncomfortable to you to get politically involved in something? I know you had some some feelings about um, Ashley getting involved in the in the Senate race here, uh, and and did you breathe a sigh of relief when she decided not to? I did, but that was. Uh because um, I'm her mother and I, well, first of all, we went to um, Washington, Ashley and our family psychologist, Ted Klontz. We went up there um, numerous times to sort of check out the lay of the land and um, Ashley and I shared a, a suite so that we could in the center have the living room area with we would have our meetings and all. So at the end of the day, <clears throat> um, Ashley and I were, I, I can't find a strong enough word, we were so horrified at the sociopathy, what we saw going on in Washington, D.C. Um, you have to understand that Ashley has such a pure heart Ashley's like me. Um, I think coming from Kentucky, you have a sensibility about what certain needs are because Kentucky is a, a state that needs so many different um, justice programs. But Ashley comes into everything with a certain amount of naivete because she's brilliant. You know, she has a degree from Harvard. She went back to Harvard. I'll never forget, we were having supper at the supper table one night, and it's sort of become um, a legend in, in Judd lore now. Uh, <laughs> it started years ago when I thought she was going to go to um, the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. straight from graduating the University of Kentucky. She'd been accepted in the Peace Corps, and she says, Mama, past assault, I think I'll go to Hollywood and become an actress. And um, lo and behold, she did, and uh, what an actress she is. So 
all these years later, she still does that to me. Like a couple of years ago, she said, Mama passed us all. I think I'll go back to Harvard and get a deg- degree in global economics. Uh, but, but, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when at the supper table she said, Mama passed us all, I think I'll go to Washington. Why don't you come with me and let's check out the landscape, mm-hmm. see if uh, Mitch McConnell is still viable and uh, see what we can do to unseat him. So I never know what she's going to do, but I know that it's prompted by um, such a pure heart, and she knows her stuff. Did you and Ashley find in Washington um, what uh, most of us outside of the Beltway and outside uh, in in the heartland uh, in Kentucky have now discovered, um, uh, which is just almost an impossible place to be and gridlock, uh, uh, millennials, the young uh, poll just out of just out of Harvard, found that these young people, 18 to 29, are completely, um, uh, they've lost faith in the system. Uh, they don't think Washington works. Um, did, did you find that just in the time that you were there, sort of trying to make a decision on what to do? Yeah. Was it exasperating, exhausting for it you? It was beyond uh, exasperating. Let me find a stronger word. Um, he used the word horrified. I mm. think that comes closer because mm. <clears throat> these are elected <clears throat> officials and they are supposed to be our representatives. And <clears throat> one of the things that's happened in this country is the bipartisanship. You know, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. I personally am a registered independent. I vote on the issues. Um, what a concept, huh? Mm. I thought that that's what the two-party system was supposed to be for, you know, whoever came up with the best idea. But at the end of the day, Ashley and I were so, I guess the word is mortified, Mm. um, devastated by the lack of um, sincerity, Mm. the lack of awareness, the lack of uh, uh, a willingness to listen to the other side. We were just, I mean, sometimes we'd cry Mm. to tell you the truth. Well, let's talk about you. Uh, this medically documented miracle is hmm. um, is really quite fascinating to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people. Um, you contracted hepatitis C, mm-hmm. uh, fatal uh, for a lot of people, uh, mm-hmm. but not you. In the dark of night or the early morning dawn, do you think about that and and what really happened to you and, and why you survived, why you are a survivor? I think about it every minute. Ah. I do. Um, I, before the singing career, I was a registered nurse, and I worked in ICU. Um, and if you know anything about ICU, and it's basically a trauma situation. It's, it's like the ER. You subjugate yourself. You get needle sticks. You have bodily mm. fluids. So... Um, the best guess is that um, I got a contaminated needle stick mm-hmm. in the um, early 80s when I was working as an RN. And it's a retrograde virus, so it didn't actually fulminate. It didn't manifest uh, with symptomology until I was into my singing career. Fast forward 10 years. So here I am, finally, finally figured something out. Um, you know, life is not fair. Mm. Nobody said it was going to be. But here I am at the top of my game. 
I finally have friends. I have something I can do. Winona and I have found a way to communicate. Um, I've been able to buy, actually, a house that has a thermostat. Mm. Um, all she ever wanted was just to have a normal childhood, bless her heart. So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. which has been one of the... Uh, um, hallmarks of my life. You know, just about the time I start to figure something out, it explodes into chaos. Mm. So, yep, the Mayo Clinic tells me I have three years to live, and um, uh, hepatitis C is called a silent killer. It will actually, in the next decade, kill four times more Americans than AIDS will. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to touch on a couple of more things, and this might have helped you sort of deal with this medical emergency that you had and, and the surviving that. And it's sort of your unfailing optimism and, and spirit and hope about yourself and, and others. Was that instilled in you um, early on? How did, was that, how did all that occur? <laughs> I mean, you just don't wake up one day I, and say, pass the salt, I'm gonna be an, an, an optimist, do you? I have asked myself that um, countless times because I can't point to anyone in our family that, um, in fact, um, there's a real pathology. There's a real um, pessimism in our family. Um, Depression, and I battle depression. Ashley battles depression. We've been pretty vocal about that. But let me jump forward here and say that uh, one of my dear friends, um, and I'm very proud to call him a friend, his name is Dr. Francis Collins. Mm. He decoded the genome. Mm. He's that guy. He decoded Mm -hmm. the human genome Mm -hmm. in the year 2000. He was on the cover of Time Magazine and um, one of the most brilliant scientists that ever lived. He's been a friend for 23 years. He has taught me that, and he's the expert in genes, so he would know, that really only a third of our genetic makeup is responsible for um, all this stuff, that we actually get only a third of our genes responsible. Two-thirds of it is up to us Hmm. to decide how those genes are expressed. He came to visit me. In fact, it's the first vacation he's ever had. Hmm. Um, Came to the farm to stay for a week. So, of course, I pestered him about all this. But... um, He's taught me that um, we're really in such a seat of power. And he's helped me with my depression. And of course, I share this with Ashley mm-hmm. um, in battling depression, which is an illness. You know, it's not a, a mental. Um, depression is just like diabetes or thyroid or whatever. Your brain doesn't make enough of the good feel good chemicals. So just like with diabetes, you have to, if your body doesn't, your pancreas doesn't produce insulin, you have to take insulin. If your thyroid isn't active, you have to take thyroxine. So if your brain doesn't make the good feel-good chemicals to give you a level playing field, then you need to take antidepressants. Antidepressants, SSRIs or MEOI uh, inhibitors. But... um, it's not a character flaw, is what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Depression is not a character flaw. It's a, 
It's a very real disease, just like heart disease. In fact, one out of four Americans every year will have a mental illness. Naomi Judd in a 2014 conversation on the KET program, One-on-One with Bill Goodman. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering from WMMT Mountain Community Radio.